you know, and this whole time, okay, he's got the gun on him. He's holding this gun on her. She's been the, with her parents for three days. Seriously, are you? Cr- I'm sorry, just that just doesn't add up at all for me. So Amy called you after Ivan was arrested. She said, like specifically, "Get me out of here. They're going to kill me." Is that something familiar? That yes. Yes. If Ivan was arrested, who were they? She thought he said she really believed he had a mob. <laughs> so Amy never said anything about this mob. Oh dear God. I would have laughed in her face like I just did. That's silly. When you called your stepdad and said, you gotta get me out of here, they're gonna kill me. Yep. And that's what your stepdad said. Who was they? Um, Ivan's mom wanted to come and pick me up and his aunt or whatever. But I was like really scared to go to IHOP and everything like that. And we made it IHOP on 183 and everything. I was sitting next to Amy. Did she seem afraid of him? Nope. She had her head on his shoulder and she was like, she was tired, she was sleepy, she just wanted to get out of there. She was not interested in anything being said. And why were you afraid of Ivan's mom, though? I don't know. I just, I don't know. The guy had pumped her so full of shit, isn't it? You know? Well, at any time, did Amy act scared of Ivan? No. She, more, she acted more scared of me. According to Ivan, there were dirty cops who were was on Ivan's payroll. <laughs> this is just getting silly. Why is it that some people are so certain Ivan did it, while others are not? Is it just because they knew Ivan and they don't want to believe he was capable of something like that? Or is there something to Ivan's innocence claim? Is there a nagging feeling in the pit of your stomach that says, I don't think he did it? But then again, maybe he did. As I've said, the goal of this podcast is to get to the truth. I want to see the whole picture. I want to know what really happened. And there's still more work to do. Episode 35 the forensics. When this thing goes to court and trial, I have one shot and one opportunity to be not guilty or I go to prison in death row. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the reality of it. We have busted alibis. We have caught people in lies. This is just insane because everybody's pointing the finger at somebody else. You just don't hear every day walking in somebody's house, they're going to take the plastic out and pop somebody. So he could get the execution date pretty much any day? Yeah. There's no impediment. This is Cousins by Blood.
There are many enigmas in this case. But perhaps the biggest died last year. Amy Betcher. How many pieces of the puzzle got buried with her in 2021? If it all went down like she said it did, why did she lie about elements in this case? Did she lie about just certain things? Or did she lie about the whole thing? That's the big question. And even though Amy passed away, there is still more to uncover about her side of the story. To see the full picture, we have to look at this case from all the angles. So let's say Amy was telling the truth, well, about the main things, the murders and being afraid of Ivan. Could the alleged domestic violence between her and Ivan and witnessing the horrific murder scene explain some of the anomalies in her account? I didn't know, so I reached out to someone who would. Hi, this is John. Hello, John. This is Matt Duff. How are you, sir? Uh, good. Good morning. So I was looking, I read everything. That's Dr. John Amell. Dr. Amell is a forensic psychologist with a specialty focus in domestic violence, battered woman syndrome, and family abuse. I wanted to hear what insight an expert in this area could provide. In preparation for this interview, I sent Dr. Amell the majority of Amy's trial testimony over 150 pages. It included testimony about Amy's backstory, and it read like this. Miss Betcher, how old are you? 25. Where did you grow up, Miss Betcher? Minnesota. Are your parents divorced? Yes. When did they get divorced? When I was around eight. What was your household like during that time? At first it was great, but then it started getting pretty bad when they started getting a divorce. What happened when they started getting a divorce? My dad would beat my mom pretty bad. Did you see that? Yes. Did your dad have a problem with drinking? Yes. Was that the whole time that you were living with them? Or did that become more frequent with the divorce? The abusive part became more frequent at the divorce, but the drinking was all the time. Did your dad ever hit you or your brother? Yes. On a frequent basis? Or how often? He hit me once. How old were you when your dad hit you? I was in sixth grade. Why did he hit you? For a spelling test and uh, being sassy. What did he hit you with? His hand. Where did he hit you? On the butt and across the face. And he strangled me on the kitchen floor. Because of the spelling test and the attitude? Mm-hmm. After your mom and dad got divorced, where did you live? I stayed with my mom and her new husband. How soon after she divorced your dad? I was about 12 years old. How long was she married to that stepdad? Not that long, probably a year. And you were living with them while they were married? Yes. And how was that? It was okay for a while. And then the abuse started happening. What did you see him do to your mom? He would just be mean to her, call her bad names. How did he treat you? He hit me. How often did he hit you? He hit me once, and then my mom left him. And did your mom remarry again? Yes. 
And who did she remarry? Richard Kramer. And how old were you when she married Richard Kramer? About 14. Did you live with your mom and Richard Kramer? Yes. And at some point in time, did you move out on your own? Yes, around 16 or 18 years old. Where did you live? With friends. So Dr. Amell got a sense of Amy's youth. How did you end up from Minnesota to Dallas? I met three guys at a bar that already lived down here, and then I hopped on a plane with them. What were those guys' names? Brad, Chris, and Aaron. Did you start dating one of those guys? Yes. Who did you start dating? Chris. How long have you known these guys before you hopped on the plane? Maybe 24 hours. What made you decide to get on a plane and move to Texas? Uh, just something spontaneous to do. Did anyone else go with you? No. It is interesting how Amy wound up in Dallas. She just hopped on a plane with three guys she met at a bar the night before. And when you moved to Dallas, who did you live with? Chris. And how was that relationship? It was good at first, but then he started getting abusive. How was he abusive? He hit me, stepped on my neck. What happened that led him up to stepping on your neck? We were out on the lake, and we just started arguing, and he brought me down to the bow of his boat, underneath the bow there, and threw me around. After he did that, did you still continue to see him? Yes. Even though he beat you up? Yes. When you were living with Chris, were you working? Off and on. And who was taking care of most of the bills? Chris. And when you would work off and on, where were you working? I would sell insurance, lease out apartments, answer phones at places. And you relied on Chris mostly to take care of things? Yes. Did he ever tell you or make you go get a job? Yeah. Would you go get one? Sometimes. What would happen when you'd get those jobs? I was always late, never on time. Did you end up getting fired? Did you quit? Some I quit. Some I got fired. In September of 2000, when you got fired from the apartment job, was it around that time? Did you meet a person named Ivan Cantu? Yes. Where did you meet Ivan Cantu? At Club 7. Who were you at Club 7 with? A girlfriend named Raina. Yep, the same Raina, whose ring Ivan says Amy was actually wearing the night of the murders. Perhaps we'll never know for sure, because according to Raina's husband... That was 20 years ago. We don't know nothing about nothing that happened 20 years ago. Don't nobody know nothing about what happened I 20 years ago. I just didn't know what items were stolen and from I'm, her And that I'm night. telling you, this is the last time I'm going to tell you to. How did you end up meeting Ivan Cantu? Ivan walked up to our table and he told me that this was his table. And I asked him what his name was. And I told him, I'm sorry, I don't see his name anywhere. But he was more than welcome to join us. And did he join you? Yes. And this person that we were talking about, Ivan Cantu, do you see him in the courtroom today? Yes. Point to him and identify something he's wearing. His sweater, green sweater, white collar. Your Honor, may the record reflect she identified the defendant, Ivan Abner Cantu. As well... Dr. Amell read her testimony about her time with Ivan, which she described as, quote, wonderful, up until November 2nd, that is, when she says Ivan shot the gun at her 
in their apartment. So now, this is Dr. Amell's analysis from the transcript. I read everything. So it, it seems to me that nobody really knows the extent of the domestic violence with this couple. I mean, from what I could, I mean, it's contradictory, right? She, she says, you know, he shot at her, that there are a lot of allegations uh, and that, frankly, no one will, re- will ever really know uh, the extent to which there was domestic violence uh, with this couple. She says that, you know, he, he, he put a gun to her head and uh, actually fired a shot, I guess, to, to scare her, to show her that he really meant business. Uh, on the other hand, uh, elsewhere, she says that he treated her like a princess and all that. When you're in your scope of analysis, you indicate it. Initially, it was assumed that because a handful of witnesses stated Amy did not appear to be afraid of Ivan and even seemed ecstatic to be engaged to Ivan, that she was lying about being afraid. Could she have just been acting not afraid? I really don't know. Um, I, I can't, there's no way to determine that. I can tell you this, as I was, you know, listening to her testimony, or reading her testimony, I should say, she did seem believable. You know, she she may very well be a lying psychopath, but I, I just, it, you know, the way she answered the questions, it appeared to me that she's that she's, you know, your garden variety, antisocial drug addict. And yeah, probably a manipulative kind of person. I don't doubt the opinions of others who have characterized her in that way. Because she grew up in a really dysfunctional environment and women who grow up in those kind of environments tend to pair up with guys who are also antisocial, you know, kind of Birds of a feather flock together. And as to the question as to, you know, was she really afraid of him? Um, and why did she not try to, to escape from him when she had opportunities to do so? Um, it seems to me that even had he not been violent towards her on a regular basis, even if he did treat her pretty well, you know, normally, um, it seems very believable to me that um, since he was, you know, found guilty of this crime, that he did intimidate her. And at some point, uh, whether or not he had been violent towards her before, there is uh, in the record a pattern where he's controlling. He's at least, you know, he orders her around. He tells her, go get me cigarettes. And that's not inconsistent with that kind of lifestyle where the girlfriend just hangs around because she uh, she doesn't have to pay for anything. And in return for her not having to pay for anything or being taken care of, she kind of does what he tells her. And it's not inconceivable to me at all that when it came to the point where he was going to hurt somebody, you know, he took that very seriously and wanted to impress upon her how serious he was. And I find it perfectly believable that he that he did shoot around her to threaten her. And I do believe that she was scared. Now, why didn't she call the police? Why didn't she, her, her stepfather is a cop. 
Why didn't she tell him? Why didn't she tell anyone? Well, that's assuming that she's a normal person who grew up in a a, a law-abiding environment like most of us, but she didn't. She grew up in a really dysfunctional environment. She was predisposed as a as a criminal to not trust police. So I, I find it very believable that she just didn't call the police for a combination of reasons. She was, she was undoubtedly afraid of him. I mean, she had just seen that he had shot two people and not only did she know that he had shot two people, he insisted that she see this. So clearly, that would have scared the hell out of me. It would scare most people. Yes, if Ivan did in fact take Amy back to the crime scene around 2.30 a.m., as she says, then Amy would have been in a state of shock and fear, hard to comprehend. Why did she go to the police? Fear and possibly because, uh, as I said, she uh, she's a criminal and, you know, criminals tend to not want to involve the police if they, if they can help it. So now, uh, is it possible that... Uh, is it possible that domestic violence had nothing to do with it? Is it possible that she's a lying psychopath who manipulated all this on behalf of some some other parties? I certainly think that's possible, you know. But I'm not an attorney, and it's not my job to uh, figure out the facts of the case. I'm, if I'm asked about whether she, you know, was really afraid or not, I I, I would say she was. <sighs> yeah, I would say she probably was. Again, it doesn't mean that it was. You know, I, I wouldn't be shocked if I if it turned out that this woman was a psychopath who was mixed up with some some people and set up set up Ivan. That would be consistent, you know, with with what I know about antisocial types. But to be honest with you, she just seems too stupid to be a part of some kind of criminal conspiracy. I just I just don't think she's that smart. Sociopaths and antisocial people can be very stupid in many ways, uh, even though they seem really bright in some other ways. So, yeah, she might have been very manipulative in a, in a kind of a, the way that antisocial people are. They're just kind of this natural, they've learned on the streets how to manipulate people. But that doesn't mean that they're very smart. I just don't think that the idea that she made it all this up as opposed to just her being in fear. I just don't think that holds up. I think she was probably more in fear. And I, that would seem to be the most simple uh, and fitting explanation. Occam's razor. Say Occam's razor. Yeah, yes, yes, exactly. Occam's razor is a scientific and philosophical rule that the simplest explanation is usually the best one. And while there are problems with Amy's statement, the Amy telling mainly the truth angle and Ivan committing the murders is the simplest explanation. I do believe she was scared and her stepfather and her mother, even when she went back to Arkansas after Ivan was arrested, said she was scared. But the, the thing that always stuck out with me was the fact that she called her stepfather and she says, you got to get me out of here. After Ivan was arrested, she said, you got to get me out of here. They're going to kill me. Right. Because she thought that maybe there was some other people. He may very well be innocent. But again, I'm I'm just asked about the domestic violence. And that was that's my opinion on the domestic violence. 
when considering that Ivan did have a history of domestic violence with his first and second wife, it does lend credence to Amy's story. But as we look back at Ivan's past, we have to look back at Amy's past as well. You'll remember Amy's former neighbor, TJ, who you heard from in episode 14. I called TJ back after she heard Amy's interview in episode 15 because I wanted to know... What did you think? I mean, did you think that she was being straight up and she was telling us the truth? No, I still didn't fully believe stuff. I mean, I think there's probably some truth to it. I feel like she's had to repeat it so many times. You know, it's kind of hard to believe her when she can only remember certain little details, but, you know, not major. You know, like when she talked about the little blood bubble in his hair. Like on the... Like bubbles of blood or whatever. You know, like when you can make a little bubble on your tongue of spit or something, you know, the little tiny ones mm-hmm. or whatever? Yeah. How do you remember that little tiny dot, but not... There was a, a latex glove in the trash can. Do you recall ever seeing that before? Mm, I don't recall it. But as you'll recall, in all four of Amy's statements to police... She said Ivan came back wearing the latex gloves. Did Ivan come in wearing gloves? I don't recall that either. Yeah, and then she goes from I threw the clothes in the garbage to he threw to I don't know. I guess the biggest other thing is could she have been that scared of Ivan? And she was afraid to, you know, just walk out of the apartment from Ivan. I mean, it was 20 years ago and, you know, slightly a different Amy than maybe what you knew. But if she saw that stuff and it really happened, like she said. No, I think she would have ran. You know, she runs away from the trouble because she wants to save herself. She don't do anything it takes to keep herself out of trouble. So I, I don't know. I don't think I believe most of it. And I've talked to a handful of other people from Amy's past, and essentially, they say the same thing. They wouldn't put it past Amy to make something like this up because she was known to be untruthful. But the issue was, no one had any first-hand knowledge about Amy's involvement in this case. Amy never spoke about the murders to any of these people who reached out to me, casting their doubts on Amy's story. However, I did come across one individual that Amy had spoken to about this case. Her name is Julie Snyder, and in 2013, she sent Ivan Cantu a message over Facebook Ivan, I have heard about you from Amy Betcher for the last six years. She has talked about the whole ordeal, and her story keeps changing. I'm beginning to believe you. But as it turned out, Julie sent that to another Ivan Cantu on Facebook. That Ivan Cantu replied, I'm not sure what you're getting at. Being on death row, our Ivan Cantu doesn't have access to the internet. But this was a public message on Facebook, and a listener had found it online and sent it to me. 
when I looked for Julie, I quickly found out she died years ago. But Julie's message in a bottle to Ivan. I have heard about you from Amy Betcher for the last six years. She has talked about the whole ordeal and her story keeps changing. I'm beginning to believe you. Indicates that years before this podcast ever started, people who Amy had told about this case had serious doubts about Amy's story. So what does all this mean for the Amy telling mainly the truth angle? Well, after hearing from the expert, it would seem there are strong arguments to be made either way. The next area that needed more investigation was the pathology, because in episode seven, you'll remember Dr. Judy Melanick and... To me, the interesting thing is with regards to the crime scene findings of the bodies, when you look at the description of um, Mosqueda is in full Riger is what it looks like. It says Riger in the jaw, arms, and legs. Mm-hmm. And then kitchen, the Riger is setting in in the jaw, but the body's still movable in the extremities. So you've got a difference in the rigidity of the two of them. The difference in rigidity between the two of them isn't really explained here. Um, it looks like they weren't really looking at time of death as a factor, even though we do have a period of time that Ivan and uh, his girlfriend, Amy Betcher, were out of town. (laughs) Even though forensically the time of death wasn't pinned down, according to Amy Betcher's testimony, the state's case was that the time of death was between 11.30 p.m. and 12.15 a.m. during Ivan's midnight visit. But... The fact that she doesn't have any rigidity in her legs and arms, that she's still movable, um, and it's just setting in in the jaw, so it's more or closer to a time frame that would fit the statement that was made by uh, Mr. Perez. Uh, Mr. Frank Perez, he said they weren't killed last night, they were killed today. However, the problem with this medical examiner's report... They didn't write such detail for Mosqueda. They just wrote Riger, and then there's a little arrow. So I don't know how reliable this death investigator is. Or skilled. That's the problem. So that problem needed to be resolved. The death investigator, whose report Dr. Melanick was going off of, was the field agent for the Collin County Medical Examiner's Office. Although I had the field agent's name, I couldn't find a good phone number for her. But this woman could hold the key to pinning down Amy Kitchen's time of death. So I made a trip to her last known address with the case file. A middle-aged woman with graying hair opened the door. The address was good. She invited me in and we sat at her kitchen table. I laid out the report she had worked on over 20 years ago. She said at that time, I was taking courses in forensics and I was a nurse. Oh, okay. And so I was learning about it. I had planned on being, I wanted to do um, forensic nursing, and then they moved the program to Colorado, so I didn't go. Uh, but, so how long were you with DVD? I don't remember. It was, it was a while, you know. I just remember going, holy cow, you know, I go out to the first case. She remembered James and Amy's house on Gibbons Drive, 
being the very first crime scene she ever worked. You know, it's like I wanted to do a good job, but holy cow, you walk into a double murder, the first thing you ever do, you know? Was Roar there with you? The medical examiner? Was it well, you? I think, I'm, I don't remember if he, if I knew to call him because I was so new at it. I may, How they may have the called him. Just started. Like that day? Yeah, I can't remember. I remember that it was very, very new. I was very new. There was a guy who'd been in a um, cattle trailer and all the metal fencing had fallen over him and crushed him. And I don't remember if that was the first one, but I had this very big impression that this was the first one that I went to, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. The scene. Mm-hmm. Well, before I go through your notes, what do you remember just off the top of your head? I remember the bed, you know. I, I guess they were, I think they were on it. They were yeah, in some position. I just remember a bunch of people being there and not really, um, I think they were expecting that I knew probably what to do. They were busy doing what they were doing. Yeah. So I tried to do my very best, you know, about writing everything down that I saw. For some reason, I can handle things like that. You wouldn't think a person like me would be able to go in and handle stuff like that, but I did. Now, the one thing that came up, which another medical examiner looked at, was when you said, for, this is for Amy Kitchen, it says here, rigor setting in, body still movable extremities. Um, here, it just says rigor, and that's for James. Mm-hmm. So do you remember a, a, a big difference in, in lividity or uh, rigidity? If I put the body still movable in the extremities, then I then I meant that. I don't know because of my inexperience if if I probably didn't state it like it maybe should have been stated, but it must have felt different, you know, to me to write that down, because I was new. So, mm -hmm. so you have her body was still movable. But for James, you just wrote rigor and drew a line with an arrow all the way down. Does that mean to you that he was in full rigor? Yeah, when I felt him, it must have, to me, it would have felt like that, you know? And full rigor is just stiff. You can't, yeah, you can't uh, really move. Right but she was still movable. And see, why that's important is because the state's case is that James and Amy died at midnight. Mm -hmm. You would have found them roughly about 5 p.m. the next day, and that would be 17 hours later. Mm -hmm. She shouldn't, if she was killed at midnight, another medical examiner said, she should have been in full rigor. She shouldn't have still been movable. An afternoon storm had rolled in, 
The thunder was ominous as we sat at her kitchen table. Well, I know what rear feels like. Because <laughs> I saw a bunch of people, but I hadn't seen a bunch of people at that point. But something to me was different than him, you know, and I don't, I'm trying to be as honest with you yeah. as I can. You know, I really, but if you, really. But obviously, so, I mean, this, I mean, just, we can take it at face value. That's what I wanted to know. She was not in full rigor, and, and he was. Mm-hmm. based on your notes and your memory. Yeah. Um, there was something about that that made me think that she was still movable. And dear God in heaven, I don't want to, you know, being so new at it, you know, I don't want to, I'm not trying to not tell you everything I know. I want to tell you. Because I don't want somebody to be blank for something that they didn't do, you know? Um, so I will tell you from the bottom of my heart if I remember. And I, I, all I know is what I wrote down. So that's what we have to go by. And as it turned out, for my interview with Dr. Melanick, I didn't have James and Amy's full medical examiner's report. But between that interview and now, I was able to obtain the complete report and hoped that with more information, we could have a more definitive time of death. When I went back to Dr. Melanick, she wasn't available, but she suggested I speak with. My name is Dr. Priya Banerjee. I'm a board-certified anatomic and forensic pathologist. I've been practicing over 12 years in the field of forensic pathology. So I've sent you the case file, and the main thing I'm interested in determining is a more precise time of death. Based on the report, so just to go through the timeline, they were last known alive on the 3rd at uh, 10.30 p.m. They were found during a well-being check the next day, which is November 4th, at 4.27 p.m. They were pronounced at that time. And then there's the normal protocol of notifying the medical examiner and then them coming to the scene. So they were notified at 5.25 p.m. and then they were present on the scene at 6.30 p.m. I lay that out because the hours are passing and that's an important uh, window that we're working with. Okay, so all these documentations for the medical examiner investigator is done at 6.30 p.m., um, not earlier. So we are dealing with an approximate 18-hour window between last known alive and this point in examination. Now, based on the notes that are here, it says for... Amy, Amy Kitchen, it says rigor mortis setting in, body still movable in the extremity, and she is found face down. That is different than the decedent James, who is noted to be in full rigor. So what do you make of that, though? I mean, I think there's a lot of things to consider. First of all, they're found in different places in the same bedroom. So she's face down on the floor, 
uh, basically lower to the uh, on the ground, right? Versus he's on the bed. Now, all I have about the ambient temperature is described as warm, but I don't have a exact room temperature correlating with that. The room is humid and the outside is raining. He has three windows in front of, based on like a layout of the room diagram, not photos, but just a hand-drawn diagram. It looks like there's three windows in front of him. I have no documentation that they're open. And why I say this is because all these variables, like whether sun is shining on them, what the room temperature is, if there's air circulation around one or both bodies, what their build is like, what they're dressed in, all of these affect how quickly rigor mortis develops. Now, you know, in a textbook, we have eight to 12 hours, okay? But, you know, in a 70-degree room, in an average size, you know, person. But Amy is like 135, 40 pounds, and James is like 200 pounds. So obviously, there's a significant structural difference between the two. He's not covered. It just says the covers over his left leg. So his body's still relatively exposed. He's dressed in a thin layer of like a t-shirt and shorts. She's also dressed similarly, like a t-shirt and shorts. So it's not like either of them are very covered. So they should, if they're dead around the same time, she should cool relatively faster than him because she's thinner. So I find it curious that her rigor is so breakable. Could it be that she's accelerated all the way through rigor and then it's passing? Uh, that could be. What does that timeline look like when someone goes all the way through rigor and then it's passing? So it sets in at two hours. I mean, this is like the textbook, though, you know, but you first see it in like around two hours and it builds. 8 to 12 hours, 12 to 24 is maximum, and then 24 to 36, it should be dissipating. Say she was killed at midnight, and then Mm -hmm. so uh, roughly about 16 hours later was when this exam was done. Right. Is that possible to have given her enough time to go through full rigor and then be coming out of it? I mean, it seems unlikely. I think likely she's on the more likely on the building side than the passing side. I still think it's interesting that the two two of them have different levels of rigor now at autopsy i don't understand how the rigor can still be present somewhat because usually the autopsy was days after the initial exam at the scene when they were discovered right so explain that so their bodies were found on the fourth when was the uh, official autopsy performed and what was their rigor at that point and what does that tell you Amy has zero rigidity in her head and neck, two plus in the arms and four plus in the legs. So that is still like it's full to passing. I guess it's passing in the head and neck first, you know, slightly in the arms and it's still there in the legs. And that's consistent with what I thought with it building, right? When we first saw her. I just think that's interesting that it's there this far out. Usually, I by two days after, I would think it should be absent completely. It just seems like we're at the end of rigidity. I mean, that seems to me like she's killed closer to... Let me just do some math. 
So she's building rigor, meaning she's in the increasing, like, of the curve. She's in the front of the curve. So her time of death is probably closer to 8 to 12 hours from the exam. So if the field examination was performed around 6.30 p.m., Dr. Banerjee's assessment is that Amy Kitchen would have been killed between 6.30 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. What's interesting about that time window is if someone other than Ivan committed the murders, their window for the crime would be from 6.30 a.m. when Ivan says he last saw Amy Kitchen alive and around 9.30 a.m. when Amy Kitchen's mom stated she started calling her that morning and no one picked up. It seems like much after, hours after the reported, pos- you know, what was that, the 11.30 to 12.15 window, that seems a lot less likely based on postmortem changes. So Ivan said that he saw Amy alive at 6.30 a.m. that morning. Mm-hmm. So about 12 hours, right, uh-huh. right at 12 hours prior to this report being taken. Is that possible based on this yes. report? Yes. Is this um, report consistent with James still being alive potentially yeah. at 630. 630 to 6, yeah. Because he could have gotten into full rigor within eight, 8 to 12, 12 hours. hours. Yeah, yeah. So he could have still been alive as well. Right. Is it possible Amy Kitchen was murdered at midnight? I don't think it is. She's thinner. And I think her rigor would go through faster. She would cool quicker than him. I think Ivan saying he saw her at 6.30 seems more likely. And you'll also remember in episode 11, Ivan's wife Tammy said she talked to Dr. Rohr, the Collin County medical examiner, around 2008. And he told her he also believed it was possible that Amy Kitchen was alive at 6.30 a.m. And he would have testified to that if the defense had asked him. If Ivan said he said last hour alive at 6 o'clock that morning, I would buy it. I'm not buying that they were dead the night before at 10 p.m. No, not with the Riger setting it in the jaw. She should be in full Riger if she died the night before. All three medical examiners are in agreement based on the rigor mortis, it just doesn't seem possible for Amy Kitchen to have been killed around midnight, the time in which Amy Betcher testified Ivan committed the murders. So why is that? We'll be discussing the possibilities in an upcoming episode. Now it's time to catch you up on arguably the most important piece of forensic evidence in this case the thumbprint found on the magazine of the murder weapon. And actually quite a bit has been going on behind the scenes since Mr. Ludus declared that erroneous identification in episode 23. You'll remember Dr. Simon Cole. He's the professor with the expertise in the validity of fingerprint evidence. I was impressed by the level of detail and documentation that he contained in his report supporting his conclusions. The next step and solidifying Mr. Ludus's conclusion started with Dr. Cole's recommendation. So it will be up to other uh, fingerprint examiners to look at that documentation 
and see what they think of it. So that's what we intended to do. And Dr. Cole was willing to help. He began to send out a copy of Ivan's known print and the latent print on the magazine to different fingerprint examiners to see if they agree with Mr. Ludus' finding that the prints didn't match. I figured the more examiners that agreed with Mr. Ludus, the better position Ivan's current lawyer, Gina Bunn, would be in when presenting Ludus's fingerprint report to the Collin County District Attorney's Office. And to be clear, I don't work for Ivan's defense. My investigation is independent with the goal of just getting to the truth. However, over the course of this investigation, when I come across major pieces of new information, like the Rolex discovery and this erroneous fingerprint report, I pass them along to Ivan's lawyer. But because I'm not a part of the defense team, I'm not privy to how and when she might use this newly discovered evidence. It took a little while to hear back from the first fingerprint examiner that Simon Cole reached out to, but he came back with a report that stated, quote, complex comparison, no correspondence found, but differences insufficient to support a different source conclusion, higher quality latent print and or more clear and complete known prints may result in a different conclusion. So there's some leeway there, but to me, no correspondence found sounded like it was certainly leaning in Ludus's direction. Meanwhile, Ludus was sure it was not Ivan's print on the magazine of the murder weapon, and he had all the documentation he needed to prove it. And Mr. Ludus was getting impatient because... Nothing's happening, and time is going fast. It's already October, you know, and I was looking at, you know, looking at the calendar, it's like, damn, this is October. I made the, you know, I declared the bomb back in December, January. We've done nothing. I accomplished nothing. You've got the podcast, but we've not done anything. Legally speaking. It could go on for years more. That's the way they are. They go on for years after the evidence is already proven. It doesn't matter. It goes on. And they keep him in prison. And see, he needs to get out. And the legal system takes forever. Because of his erroneous identification claim, Mr. Ludus was convinced of Ivan's wrongful conviction. And he had worked on cases in this position before. And it took multiple years for courts to resolve the issue and grant relief. But with this case, he found himself in a unique position. Ludus wasn't hired by a lawyer. I called him out of the blue and asked him if he would be willing to work on this case pro bono. So in effect, Ludus was independent. And when he finished his 63-page report, he wasn't finished working on this case. And after so many months, he just could not sit on his hands any longer. He wanted to expedite the wheels of justice, but his idea was outside the box. And, and I am, I'm doing this on my own, that this was not endorsed or promoted by you, but I felt like it needed to be done. Since the misidentification was made by Dallas PD, Ludus's plan was to go directly to the Dallas police chief, send his report and have them see the error for themselves because Mr. Ludus was also former law enforcement. He thought he could get the department's ear and get them on board to make this right. 
it seemed like a long shot, but Ludus was full of enthusiasm. Well, you know, I sent that letter to the chief. Yeah. All right. They called me this afternoon. Okay. I think it was a lieutenant, Lieutenant Wiles. And he called me, uh, I don't know, it was around one. And he said, just want to let you know, we're looking at the evidence. We got your letter. So he said that they got a major involved on it. It's an official investigation. <laughs> wow. I said, look, man, I'm a police officer. I'm a retired police officer. I'm trying to, I'm trying to help you guys start all over again on this investigation and forget about the past and move forward and look at the print and find all the evidence. And then I explained to him, I said, they collected that gun from Tawny's apartment. And I said, I saw photographs of that ammunition box. I said, that is a perfect surface to get latent prints. And that's why I think there's other latent prints out there that need to be compared and found. And they may not be in a report. If they're working on it on a Saturday, that's a good sign. And we we just couldn't crack this egg, man. We just couldn't get anything going. So I'm telling you, I feel better now than I ever have since, you know, uh, December 18th. That was the first time he declared this print to be an erroneous identification. And, you know, I told him, I said, man, the reason I'm trying to do it this way is we could solve the murder and we don't have to be adversaries. Let's just start over, put fresh eyes on it and look at the evidence and see where it goes. But I'm, right now, man, I'm just, I, I'm on top of the world with this. His plan was working and the tide might finally be turning in Ivan's favor. So Ludus was on cloud nine. It had been a few weeks, and he hadn't heard back from Dallas PD, but he did hear back from another fingerprint examiner that he had sent the prints to for comparison. And the results were... Not good. So you saw... Well, you know, remember when um, I told you that you were either going to have the most incredible exoneration or I was going to be declared a disaster if I got this wrong? Yes. I got it wrong, Matt. And I'm... I gotta make it right. I apologize. I just... I just found out this morning. I figured it out. And I talked to somebody. And I made the biggest mistake of my life. And I'm gonna own up to it. I'm done. I'm going to retire. You try to find out what's your bottom day, and this is an easy one for me. Uh, talking to you is, is brutal. It is absolutely brutal. I'll go through the whole process for you on the, for the podcast. I'll do anything to make it right. But I have to, I have to correct it. It was just turned? It was just rotated? Yeah. 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 I mean, I'll be able to show it to you. Yeah. You'll be able to see it, and it'll fall right into place. 
because you can use the same points. You just have to rotate it over so far that you can't even, it just doesn't look right, but then it is. It's just uh, prints do that every once in a while. Of course, I always felt like Ivan was wrongfully convicted because of the fingerprint error. I didn't necessarily, that's not automatic. Well, he's innocent, but I always felt like the fingerprint error was wrong. Therefore, it exculpates him and he needs a new trial. What now is, what is his explanation? He's had it both ways. This, um, it destroys me to tell you this. However, the other material that you found and the information you found is separate and apart. And it's just confusing. But, uh, man, I let you down. I let well, you down. Well, you don't let me down. I just wanted to, uh, to get to the truth. This is all part of the story, man. I got into it, but I got to do the right thing as I get out. I'll carry this with me forever, you know, this, this error. And it's how do you reconcile mistakes? <laughs> That's the, the measure of somebody. How, how after being so absolute, did Ludus get this so wrong? The way he described it to me was that basically he had the latent print rotated slightly off. I mean, could, could you explain, is that what happened? Yeah, absolutely. That is Eric Ray, a certified latent print examiner. He was the first examiner that Dr. Simon Cole sent this print to, so he comes with high regard. And although upon first inspection, he came back with that non-conclusive, he found Mr. Lutus's full report on the Cousins by Blood website, just perusing the internet for fingerprints. And... You know, I kind of go through the rest of his documentation and go back to what I had uh, done. I realized that I had made really the same mistake uh, of looking at very limited area. So I broadened out the area that I would consider, found uh, some correspondence, and then reached back out to Simon saying, hey, in this case, you know, I found, um, found some more, I found actually correspondence that matched. And here Eric Ray walks us through Ludus's report and where he got it wrong. All right, so here in his notes, you can see he's marked out down here in yellow uh, what appears to be a, a delta shape. And although Mr. Ludus had identified the delta on the bottom right of the latent print. So what's actually going on is that there's, there's some other ridge detail here from another touch, or maybe even it's just background noise. Again, it's, it's unclear because of the lower quality in this area that looks like it's coming across, but it's actually not. So this appearance of a delta is what uh, you know, led him to assume the orientation. And then from then on down the road, every other thing that he saw and every other, and then his final conclusion was all based on this orientation being correct, which it wasn't. Every other step that he did throughout the entire process, all the documentation, was absolutely correct. I very rarely see that level of documentation. I was impressed, honestly. 
But since it was started with this first step of putting the orientation wrong, that's what led him to the incorrect decision. As a fingerprint examiner, at first glance, that looks correct. Yep. That's when I first saw this. That's where I started. The other colleague I've had look at this. That's where he started. Like that's just that's just where most examiners would start because of the shape of the print, how the ridges flow through the whole thing, and what looks like the delta there at the bottom. Just so there's no confusion moving forward, is that Ivan's print on the magazine of the gun? It is. Eric Ray did a full video examination of the comparison for his Double Loop podcast. There's a link in the show notes. So this print match took a full 360. It is, it isn't, and now it's back to it is. An incredible turn of events. I wanted to talk to you, but I've got to get straight with the chief, too. So Ludus emailed the chief, and I emailed Ivan's lawyer. We let them know that Ludus's report was incorrect and no longer on the table. The hardest part for me was delivering the bad news to Ivan's mom, Sylvia, and his wife, Tammy. My investigation had gotten their hopes up just to be let back down. And I had to write Ivan, letting him know that Ludus was reversing his opinion. I couldn't help think, if Ivan is guilty and he has known all along that really was his print, he sure did a good job of making Mr. Ludus look foolish for believing in him. And that thought quickly turned inward. I've spent multiple years investigating Ivan's innocence. Maybe I was the one that really looked foolish. Had Ivan been playing me all along? Well, if he is guilty, then yes. And he's been playing this innocent game for over 20 years. First, he had his mom and Aunt Penny jump through all the hoops. No, I need you guys to do this because this opens up doors for me. Instead of us waiting and praying and having faith. No, my faith is in you guys. God can't run around town and hook this up. It's got to be you. Then, his wife, Tammy, she questioned me on a, on a lot of... That originally, she thought I was, you know, lying to her about my case. And when I was able to prove to her and show her that I wasn't and that I was telling the truth, then she became my, my biggest supporter. And I'd be just the latest who Ivan sent on his fool's errand. But we signed up for it because you also can't help think that the answer... The truth will come into focus when you find that one piece of evidence that explains everything. As for the thumbprint on the murder weapon, I knew that was likely the case when I first started this in 2019. Back then, even with the fingerprint match, I saw too many questions that needed to be answered before a person gets executed. I've gotten some of those answers, but I still want more. My name is Chris Robinson. I'm a forensic consultant in Atlanta, Georgia. Georgia Bureau Investigation for 10 years. And then I worked for, I was the director of the crime lab for the city of Atlanta Police Department for two and a half years. And now I own my own company, Chris Robinson Forensics, for the past 11 and a half years. Chris Robinson is an expert in ballistics, blood spatter, and crime scene reconstruction. His analysis should give us the most precise picture 
of what happened forensically in James and Amy's bedroom that night. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Last episode, you heard my conjecture of what could have happened if Ivan did indeed kill them. Now, you'll hear what the forensics say. Yeah, the individual would have came into the, the house. So if they're familiar with the residence, they would be familiar with the layout of the, of the house. Um, I would try and go back and, and find the male individual first. Uh, that's how it generally works. You generally take care of the biggest threat first. The male appears to be asleep when the perpetrator comes into the bedroom and shoots him twice. Now, this is already completely different than my interpretation of the crime that you heard last episode. But my conjecture was based on Amy Betcher's testimony and the state's case. Because in Amy Betcher's scenario, the timeline says that James would have been awake when Ivan went over there. Now, Ivan admitted to going over there about 11.30 p.m., but at that time, he had just talked to James on the phone like five minutes prior to that, and apparently Amy was talking with her mom on the phone around that same time. Is there a way to tell if James was asleep? There's not. Okay. So the individual could have came in with a gun, told the guy not to move, And then he walks over, but in generally in that theory, the guy's going to struggle for his life, and in this case, he didn't struggle at all. In my experience in 23 and a half years, when somebody tells you they're going to blow your brains out, you grab the gun, you try to struggle. He didn't do any of that. He didn't move a muscle. On the actual shot there's a three to five inch area of intense stippling that means the gun was five inches away at the time of the shooting five inches no more on the one to the neck then he shot a second time in the head there again there's massive stippling across the face area of the individual which again indicates this is a very close shot. So you're saying that the gun was no more than five inches away from James when it was fired? That's correct, it says on the, and then the, the second one, it did as widely scattered stipple over the entire right face. Does that also say to you 
that likely James would have been asleep because how would the perpetrator have gotten so close to him? I agree. Because in my experience, most people struggle. Your fight or flight kicks in. Either you die or you fight. You would grab the gun. You would try to push it away. You would do anything you can to survive. And again, say he didn't even move. So I just find that very strange. He has no defensive wounds on his hands. He has nothing indicating that he struggled at all when this shooting occurred. You know, how does he get up there so close? I think he's asleep. Now, is this crime scene consistent with either James or Amy unlocking and opening the front door? Or would it be more consistent with the perpetrator having a key? No, I think the person had a key because I think the girl was in the bed. I think she was in the bed beside him. So this key issue is real interesting. There is no evidence and it was never even speculated at trial that Ivan had a key to James and Amy's house prior to the murders. Because the state's case was James or Amy would have just let Ivan in as they were awake right before midnight. Now, you'll remember that James and Amy's keys were found in Ivan's closet in a shoe days after the murders. And... Amy said when Ivan took her back to the crime scene around 2 a.m., Ivan opened their house with a key. So if that all happened, yes, Ivan would have a key after the murders. But there is no evidence to suggest Ivan had a key prior to the midnight visit. So let's consider both scenarios. If Ivan didn't have a key and James and Amy were in the back bedroom asleep, they didn't unlock the door, so how would Ivan have gotten in? And the second scenario, if Ivan did have a key and he was going to use it to sneak into James and Amy's house to get the jump on them, why would he call minutes before and tell James he was coming over? So to be clear, according to the blood spatter, because some of the family members have said that they saw like a puddle of blood in the bathroom, like going into the master bathroom. I also asked the field agent if she remembered the puddle of blood in the master bathroom. She couldn't remember one way or another, and there's nothing on her report about it, and no picture of blood in the bathroom in the original set of photos, although I have obtained a few additional photos. And one of the pictures provides the best perspective of the entrance to the bathroom. However, the picture is out of focus, and on the dark bathroom flooring, you can't make out if there's blood or not. But someone wrote in blue ink on the picture, puddle, and there's an arrow pointing to the entrance to the master bathroom. So apparently, yes, there was a puddle of presumably blood in the bathroom. Although in this picture, it appears that this was after the police had already worked the crime scene, removed the bodies, and kind of made a mess of the place because there are a few police gloves laying on the floor and blood had been tracked on the carpet that was not there in the original crime scene photos. 
Maybe the police put a soaked bloody sheet or pillow on the bathroom floor as they were going through the bed. So we just don't know if that puddle of blood was left there during the attack or as a byproduct of the police investigation. In some of the pictures, it looks like there may have been blood there. But from what you see, according to the blood spatter, was Amy Kitchen, would she have been in the bed or in the bathroom at the time when James was shot, assuming James was shot first? I think she would have been either in the bed or like she heard them and jumped up. I think that she's running as soon as she realizes. Now, you understand that the decibel level of a 380 is going to be about 150-something decibels, which 165 is the threshold of human hearing now. So as soon as it goes off, she's up like a shot. You know what I mean? I think everybody knows what the gun sounds like. And when a 380 goes off, it's not the loudest gun in the world. But when you hear it, you know exactly what it is. She could have been trying to get up off the bed, and then he shoots her. You know, I can't give you the order of these. Could she have been hitting the arm first? Sure. Could she have been hitting the shoulder blade? Sure. And the one in the shoulder blade, though, he goes through the, through the left scapula, through the left chest wall, enters the left chest, the lateral left third intercostal space, creating the top of the left fourth rib, so that just kind of goes into her. So she's not terribly damaged on the one in the shoulder blade. The one through her arm goes through her arm and into her breast. You know, that's not bad. So she's, she's still, she's hurt, but she's not damaged. The one in the back is, is deadly. And when she's hitting the center of the back, that's when she's done. She just drops on the floor right there because she's pretty much, I think, paralyzed at that point. She's just, it, it ruins her for sure. She could have been in the bed, but she gets up immediately when that shot goes off. Then he starts shooting at her as she's trying to get away. And then he comes over. I think he finishes her with the head shot. And then you can see that she just collapses right there by the bed. The critical thing for me is now there are no wounds to their bodies besides the gunshot wounds so there are there is no kicking here sir there's no pinching and there's no beating you'll remember at trial the state's blood spatter expert testified that the spatter on the wall and ceiling was from ivan beating or kicking amy kitchen prior to the murder which added another gruesome element to the crime i also asked the forensic pathologist you heard from earlier is there any indication that she was beaten or kicked? Not that I could tell. I don't see any unexplained bruising or beating or anything. What you see on that wall right there behind the head of James Mosqueda here is it's impact spatter and projected blood stains out of the wound. When the gun is so close, you get all the pressure. And going back to the gun now, the bullet's traveling at 1,000 feet per second. The energy of the bullet is uh, 189 foot-pounds, approximately 200 foot-pounds of energy, which would be like me dropping a 200-pound weight on you from a foot, but it's on the nose of a bullet. 
So when it goes in you, it does significant damage to your organs, to your head. Your head bleeds easily anyway. So the bullets did not exit. So all the pressure that's built up has to come back out of the wound. So that's projected blood stains you see up on the wall. You can see it expel blood, which it goes up very high off the wall, probably about maybe six to eight feet up the wall uh, out of the wound. And then you can see it running down the wall. Some of them look washed out. Now he could have been expelling blood for a second with that first shot in the neck. So some of this could be out of his mouth. But most of this is like you expel blood out of the wound track. And it's just spurted right back up the wall. And then it runs down the wall. That's just expel blood and impact spatter from the shot going in the head. If it went through the head, you'd have forward spatter traveling with the bullet, and you would have some back spatter. But the bullet didn't exit the head, so all that pressure in the head has to come back out the same hole that it went in. There's no beating, and there's no kicking. So when this trial occurred, I'm not sure who this expert was. She didn't sound like she was too keen to me because there's no damage to these bodies. None was noted, except for the wounds that they were shot with. The entry wounds into Mr. Mosqueda or James's head, they came from two different directions, correct? One was more towards the right and one was more towards the left? Nine inches from the top of the head, two and three quarters left of the midline and three inches from the top of the head, five inches right of the midline. Yes, sir. So he could have uh, snuck up and ducked down beside the bed, shot him in the neck, goes all the way through his neck and goes like to, to this side up toward your jaw area to the mastoid process up there. So it's like, you know, he didn't know what was going on. The bullet gave all its energy and would put you into shock. And then he comes around to the front and then he shoots him at three inches from the top of the head and five inches right of the midline, which means he would shoot him like he's standing over him. And you could just change the gun and shoot. I would say he just changed positions. He shot him in the neck and then he shot him from the front. Right. So, yeah, that's my question. There's no indication that there were multiple shooters. I just think it's one man. That's what this is indicative of. And you'll remember the second shooter scenario came up based on the medical examiner's investigation report. Under instrument, it listed gun dash nine millimeter casing found on the floor. It was the same field agent that wrote down nine millimeter that it also noted that Amy Kitchen's body was still movable at the scene. So I wanted to get to the bottom of that nine millimeter casing. Because according to the, the ballistics, only a 380 was used and only 380 shells or logged into evidence. There was no nine millimeter casing. Okay. But a nine millimeter is basically the same size as a 380. Uh -huh. So I'm just trying to figure out, was there ever a nine millimeter shell or? I think that I was told that. I think maybe somebody else didn't know what they were doing, you know? So I would have been going by what they told me Who's that? The police. So if you put that there, somebody told you, 
Probably, there, yeah, because I wouldn't, wouldn't have, have known. Made the, and you didn't really know what a 380, you didn't really know how to no, look for it. I didn't know how to identify that. But as at the at the scene, if there had been something that they told me, I would have thought that was what it was because I had no clue what that was. Mm-hmm. I hadn't learned enough at that point what some, some of the bullets were. So if another officer at the scene told this field agent that those were nine millimeter casings on the carpet, what we don't know is if they actually saw a nine millimeter casing or if they mistook the 380 casings for a nine millimeter by not actually inspecting it. This also brings us back around to the ruptured casing found. Now you'll remember that was interesting for multiple reasons. First, when I asked the firearm expert in episode 16, he said, When I looked at the case that I was shown, there's a rupture of the case because it wasn't seated properly inside the uh, forcing cone of the barrel of, say, a 9mm. And it does happen. You can fire a 380 round inside a 9mm pistol, and it will fire. But the bullet itself will not force itself tightly into the forcing cone of the barrel, which will allow for the case to rupture. And that's what it looked like what happened to me in this particular incident. So that would mean, yeah, there's a possibility there could be a second weapon involved. And Mr. Robinson agreed with that overall action. However, I mean, you can't be shooting at the off caliber here or the wrong caliber in the gun because it won't cycle the way it's supposed to. Otherwise, when a 380 gets fired, the mouth swells up. And the mouth's not swelled up right there. It's just tore down the side, which to me looks like it's got jammed inside the gun. And with the slide closed, it just tore the cartridge case out on that side. So I don't see any evidence that a 9 used in this incident. So our experts are in disagreement about that. And what makes Mr. Robinson's assessment of that ruptured casing intriguing is... It would have to be most likely from the shooter error. Did you ever see Ivan with a gun? Never in my life. Probably didn't even know how to load one. It would have to be most likely from the shooter error where you just don't give enough resistance to the rear of the gun. And when the, the slide moves back, it doesn't extract the cartridge case all the way. And then as it moves forward, it just splits that cartridge case because it hits just right. But that shell casing is consistent with a jam. Yes, sir. The I think it is. Which is very interesting because... You'll remember in one of Amy's statements, she said, He returned home at 12.18 a.m. by our clock. Ivan had blood on his jeans, his socks, on his gun, and the gun was jammed. That detail really stands out. How could she know that? Unless Ivan came back and said the gun jammed, like Amy said he said. Or she was at the murder scene and she saw the gun jam. Now, it does seem apparent that the cops were inserting certain details into Amy's statements, but this part about the gun being jammed is peculiar because it's not in any of the statements the police wrote out for Amy. You'll remember the first statement is in Amy's handwriting. The second statement was handwritten by an Arkansas state police sergeant. The third was typed up by a Dallas detective over the phone, and the fourth was handwritten by a detective Wynn and there was a fifth and final statement that was typed up by Kramer. Well, only the first and fifth statement contained this jam detail, so it wasn't a detail inserted by the police. 
and this ruptured casing was not noted as being significant during the investigation or at trial. Ivan first drew my attention to this ruptured casing when Eisenberg and I interviewed him in prison. He pointed it out as evidence that there were anomalies with the ballistics. Eisenberg, I, or Ivan had no explanation for that rupture. And I know we're getting into the weeds with this casing, but there's still a little more that needs to be laid out, so stay with me for a second. There's evidence of seven bullets being fired during the murders. Two bullets were recovered from James' body, four bullets from Amy's body, and another stray bullet was found by the potted plant in the corner of the room. Seven bullets. Well, only three casings were found, meaning the killer would have gathered up four of the casings. Well, in Amy's statement that Kramer took, she said, He threw the shells from the gun into the trash can in the kitchen, along with the jeans, gloves, and socks. We know the police took the jeans and socks into evidence, and we can see the latex gloves in the picture of the trash can. However, for some reason, the police did not collect those. But what we don't know, if there were four casings at the bottom of that trash can. You would think, with bloody clothing being found, the police would have searched that trash bag thoroughly. But considering the latex gloves weren't taken into evidence, it's hard to say exactly what was going on with that search of the kitchen trash can. Concerning the three casings located by the police, one was recovered to the right of the bed by the door of the master bathroom. The second was located between the mattress and the headboard. And then the other shell casing, I I didn't see it, I think, until I got to the medical examiner's office and I was, you know, handling her body to put it in the refrigerator. And I think I saw it, you know, and I was like, holy cow. You know, well, but I didn't know see? what to do. I saw the casing in her, was it? in her curl, and the curls of her hair. It was one casing? Yeah, one casing. Uh-huh. That was the ruptured casing. It was tucked away in Amy Kitchen's hair, presumably not visible to the killer. So is that why Ivan had no idea a gun jamming could have caused a casing to split like that? I don't know. But these small details, this minutia, could be pieces to the puzzle. So now let's move on to the blood spatter. So if the killer was as close as you said to um, James, how much spatter would be on that one killer? I would say a significant amount. If you're holding the gun out in front of you, you're standing beside the bed, I think it would spurt back on you. I think a significant amount of spatter will be created Toxicology report says that they found human blood on the jeans, on the socks, on the gun itself. So that's what I would have expected because, again, if he's laying on the bed, that's very low to your, that's low to your lower part of your body. You're staying there. You're as high as he is with your waist. You shoot him right there, and the spatter has to come back out toward the individual. So considering what you said would have happened with, with all the blowback onto whoever's wearing, let's say, these jeans, um, do you find it odd that there's not more blood spatter on the front of the jeans? It, it looks like most of the blood spatter, there's a little smudge on the side, but then just little droplets on the back ankle 
area of the gene. Yes, um, that's in the. And you're standing beside him. I would expect the blood to kind of be on that upper part of your genes. I keep telling you about how much spatter that is up the wall. Spatter is on the bed, and actually, spatter is radiating toward the the right side of the bed. Where if you're shooting him, you're going to shoot him in the left side of the neck. So the blood is almost going in that direction. If there's that much spatter on the wall, on the ceiling, you don't think it got on the shooter? He All over his clothes. Now, I don't know where his shirt is, right? Because I don't think we have the shirt. We just have his jeans. He definitely had to have blood on the shirt, but the shirt was never recovered, so we can't question that. You'll remember that the shirt Amy said Ivan wore over during the midnight visit was the black and white No Fear shirt. Amy said Ivan left that shirt at the crime scene. And then after going to Smiley's, he took her back to James and Amy's, where he gathered the No Fear shirt, another pair of jeans, and his boots, and he put them in a white garbage bag, which he later threw out at a dumpster when they were heading to Club 7. It is just so peculiar that that shirt is nowhere to be found. But Amy also said that Ivan still had blood on him when he came back and Ivan drove back to his apartment in Amy Kitchen's Mercedes, and yet... There's no transfer in the car. I mean, there's... I don't know what he did. She said he came back when he had blood all over him, though, right? right. So I right. do think that's peculiar, because if you're covered in blood, like this crime scene appeared to be, then you would expect them to find some kind of transfer stains within the car. So Ivan's trip back to their apartment and Amy Kitchen's Mercedes is curious because of the lack of blood transfer in the car. But that's really just based off Amy's statements, especially the third statement, which states, Ivan was, quote, covered in blood and he was wearing surgical gloves, unquote. But if we're going by the evidence found in the trash can, there's blood on the socks, but Ivan would have been wearing shoes so the blood from the socks wouldn't have been transferred to the Mercedes. If Ivan was wearing James' shirt and shoes, presumably they wouldn't have had blood on them. And there were just the little drops on the back ankle and small smear on the side of the jeans. So going by all that, it's actually not too surprising that there wasn't blood transfer. But what about those surgical or latex gloves? Assuming he was wearing them when he pulled the trigger, would those latex gloves have blood spatter on them? Yes. Because, see, it'd be a high-velocity mist on the gloves because the gun's so close. So you definitely could look at those gloves. You could turn them inside out and get the skin cells from inside the gloves to see who wore the gloves. And GSR, when you pull on the trigger of a 380 by seven at times, you'd have GSR all over the gloves. It is just so baffling why those gloves were not collected because... The gloves that have blood, the gloves that have skin cells of the shooter, wow. Now... In, in all your time doing this, one, one other thing that I found completely odd is that, uh, you know, Amy Batcher's story is that Ivan killed James and Amy, you know, around midnight. So 
that would mean he fired those seven or eight shots in the back bedroom. And then she said that he came back there and they were back at the crime scene for about 15 to 20 minutes, uh, about an hour, hour and a half later. Do you hear about that a lot? I mean, coming back to a crime scene? Yes, it is. It's extremely odd. If you can murder two people in cold blood, then you go party, and then you do, you're not worried about a thing, then you come back. You have to be detached because you have to be scared. Did somebody hear something? Did somebody call the cops? Are they going to show up any second? And then you still come back and you still walk through the crime scene and you're still looking for the jewelry. And you left your clothes there just to come back and get them. See, that, that sounds crazy. Do I think that they go back over there and then they, they run through stuff. They could open the drawer. See, they, that should have been tested too, though. See, then you start fingerprinting the drawers and things like that in this drawer. Do you have Cantu's prints or her prints or whose prints are on the different evidence around the house? See, that's standard. That's standard at crime scenes, man. Did they wash your hands off in the sink? Go check the sink in the bathroom and see if he did wash his hands. Did he touch the faucet handle? I mean, see, stuff like that. Because he had to wash the butt off somehow. Did he use a towel to wipe it off and throw it down? I mean, things like that. See, I don't see anything like that. Well, actually, buried in the case file, there is something like that. There was a black towel located on Amy Kitchen's back as she was found face down on the floor. Now, some people have speculated that this towel could be evidence that she was coming out of the bathroom at the time of the attack. Perhaps this towel was on her head, drying her hair as she opened the bathroom door before being shot, then jumping over James on the bed and falling on the floor on the far side of the bed. And this towel happened to wind up laying on her back. But in the case file, it says hand towel. So it would seem this towel wouldn't have been large enough to be wrapped around Amy Kitchen's head. Further, the report states the towel appeared to have been laid or placed over Amy Kitchen by the suspect after she had been shot. And here's where things get real interesting. Detective Wynn suspended all trace evidence analysis testing on the towel Two months before the trial, in June of 2001, in the same report, he also suspended testing on the pillow with the green pillowcase. That was the pillow that appeared to be out of place as it matched the pattern in the guest bedroom, the guest bedroom that Frank Perez was staying. This pillow was clearly moved after the shots were fired because it was soaked with blood, but it was laying at the foot of the bed so the killer must have repositioned that after the murders, like the towel. In the same report, Detective Wynn suspended the testing of James' fingernail clippings. Of course, Ivan's defense attorneys never asked Detective Wynn, so we'll likely never know for sure. But it does make you wonder why. Why would Detective Wynn 
put the brakes on testing some of the most significant pieces of evidence from the crime scene that could point to the perpetrator. You have to explain that, and then the lack of DNA on the socks from him. Which brings us back to the DNA. You'll remember that post-conviction DNA testing was performed on the jeans and socks found in the apartment kitchen trash can. Back in episode 19, we heard from DNA expert Angela Ross, and regarding the socks, she said, We have mixtures at different locations. We have individuals that share DNA. Ultimately, I would have looked at this DNA profile and would have said no conclusion. Don't you think that they could nail this down a little bit better than saying, hey, you know what? Why do you leave it so far open here that it could have been any of them, you know, on the on the, this sock? I mean, what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. That's what it means. But after, say, 15 to 16 years, is it um, just the fact that the socks and jeans were so degraded? No, oh, I don't think so. Was... I think it's going to last forever, sir. It's going to last forever. It'll be right so, there. If they put it in a bag, it's going to last forever. It's going to sit right there. The DNA is not going to degrade on the socks. Well, if Ivan was wearing those socks, I'm just confused. Why does the DNA not show that he was wearing Not show that, exactly, because you know he's sweating, man. I don't care if you're a cold-blooded killer. If you're Even if you're a cold-blooded killer you, and you, you're going to kill somebody, that's fine. But you still get ready for it in your heart of hearts, right? You start sweating for it. And you're creeping in their house, and you get your brains blown out, you know, if the guy wakes up. So, I don't know. See, that's a good point. They definitely found the blood on it, and they tested it, but they didn't come up with Cantus. If he's wearing those socks, where's his DNA on those socks? See, especially with the new technology, right? And the old technology, maybe you just tested the two blood specs, but... You don't think you tested the entire sock in 2018? Guarantee it. And in regards to the DNA testing performed on the genes, there were two samples tested. The first was a swabbing collected from the entire inside waistband of the genes. That was performed to try to identify the wearer of the waistband. But there is no DNA profile that was generated from that swabbing. But it did exclude Ivan. It did exclude Ivan. Yes, it did. Let's just say, is it possible that anyone was wearing these jeans? Not based off that result, but we do need to look at the last sample. It is a cutting of the jeans. They removed a small section. So this particular sample and some of those DNA, some of that profile is consistent with Ivan. We do also see that it is a mixture. So to try to say that this is Ivan's and not some other mixtures of other individuals, I think it's misleading. I know they gave a statistic in their report. And that statistic sounded compelling because out of the four, it says that James is excluded, Amy Becher is excluded, 
Amy Kitchen is excluded, and Ivan is one in 825,000. Right. That is actually an extremely low statistic. The one in 800,000, though, is minimal. Yeah, but you have to explain that to a jury. It sounds really big, but when I say one in a quadrillion, right, then you know you're screwed. So 800,000, they make a million. So, see, that that's, that's dangerous. That's very dangerous. It sounds good, but it's not good. Because if you look, even in the first trial, James Mosqueda's DNA on the genes was 1 in 88.7 billion. But anything less than like a million, you get to be, well, maybe. So... One in 825,000 is actually not a strong statistic. That's where you start looking at things going, I don't know. I don't know. See, that makes me doubt stuff. All these these items, these the socks and the jeans that supposedly he wore. And there's really nothing, there, there isn't conclusive results that say, yes, I'm definitely sure that Ivan was wearing this. I'm not sure if anybody was wearing them or for any extended period of time. I'm very disturbed by that because it makes me feel like you don't know, so they can't tell you who wore the socks. Wow, that's amazing. They can't tell you who wore the jeans. That's amazing. With all this technology you've got, you couldn't show anything that showed it can't do for 100%. There's so many things that maybe could have exonerated him if they'd have tested the gloves and it wouldn't have been his gloves. And if the right attorney had this case, there are a lot of things that could be brought out and pointed out that there's a lot of holes here. So to synthesize the information in this episode down, according to the experts, James and Amy were asleep at the time of the murders, which contradicts the state's case. And according to postmortem changes, Amy Kitchen would have been murdered in the early morning hours of November 4th, not at midnight. But Amy Betcher's story about being scared and her behavior and not trying to get away from Ivan or calling the police is consistent with a traumatized victim of domestic violence. Additionally, if the gun jamming caused that ruptured casing, then Amy Betcher had information that only the killer would have known. But getting back to the evidence, Ivan's DNA cannot be definitively identified on the bloody jeans or the bloody socks found in the kitchen trash can. So it could be argued that Ivan was not wearing those jeans or socks. But then you have Ivan's thumbprint on the magazine of the murder weapon. The more we come to know, the harder everything is to explain. And now that Amy Betcher's dead, there might be only one person that knows the truth. Okay, I think we're ready to start. Can you just state your name and today's date? My name is Ivan Cantu. 
Today's date is July 20th, 2022. Obviously for your story to be true, your girlfriend at the time had to be lying uh, about a lot of, if not all, you say all, pretty much all of her, her statement. Why? Why would she make all this up about you? Ivan's final interview. Next time on Cousins by Blood. four episodes left. Please help spread the word to any friends that now is the perfect time for them to catch up and hear the finale in real time. Special thanks to all of our experts. In order of appearance, Dr. John Hamel, Dr. Judy Melanick, Dr. Priya Banerjee, Dr. Simon Cole, Mr. Marty Ludus, Mr. Eric Ray, Mr. Chris Robinson, Mr. Chuck Stevenson, and Miss Angela Ross. Mixing and Mastering by Jody Abbott. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned. <laughs>